What are we going to do with one of the most important stories in the life of Jesus, the only story that appears in all four Gospels? What are we going to do with one of the most important stories in the life of Jesus, which is the only one of all these stories about our Lord that appears in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? That's our question this morning as we continue in our series, His Story, and I want to get it out with you if you'd be so kind to turn in Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. And I'm planning on looking at it in some detail. So if you've got your PDA or your Pew Bible, or you're looking on the screen, that would be helpful. And what I want to do is break up the scene into four parts. I want to talk about the circumstances of the miracle, the cause of the miracle, the components of the miracle, and the conclusion of the miracle. So again, if you're with me, circumstances first, then cause, then components, then conclusion. So let's start by setting the scene, the circumstances of the miracle. Luke's gospel is very interesting. It breaks down in kind of four parts. You have the birth narrative of Jesus, and then after a couple of chapters, in chapter 4, verse 14, he starts by reading that passage in the synagogue at Nazareth. Truly this day, this word is fulfilled in your hearing, and he kind of launches after his baptism, his public ministry, and from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 9, where we are now, he's basically in and around Galilee, largely speaking, and doing various things, teaching parables, doing healings, and it's sort of early days for the disciples. They've been called right before our scene. He's actually sent out the 12 on a missionary enterprise, and they've actually had uh, some experience with healing. It says preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So the disciples are sort of getting the hang of things somewhat in an early stage. And in chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem, and he doesn't get there till chapter 19. And then that's when you get the passion narrative and following that, the resurrection narrative. So we're in the second part toward the end, if you're all with me. And we're with disciples who are trying to figure out this rabbinic teacher, and they're following him, but they're confused. One of the things that I like to say about the disciples is they are um, the, the chowder brains of the New Testament, and you really need to see yourself in them. They really spend the whole of the three years of Jesus' ministry just not getting it. And there are many times when I read it and I think of Jesus and I say to myself, if I were Jesus, I'd say, please send these guys back. <laughs> you know, give me another group. I mean, they're, they're just, you know, he tells a parable and they don't understand. He has to explain it. He does a miracle and he says something about the, 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 uh, the yeast of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and they got to have it explained. They, he, he turns around while he's walking along the way and they say, he says, what are you guys discussing? And they say, oh, nothing, just who is the greatest? I mean, it makes you want to put your it makes you want to put your head through a wall. They're so bad. And part of the reason it's written that way is for us to see ourselves in them. They just don't get it. And he's so patient and long suffering and teaching them. And that's what's going on in our story today. So look at your text and let's think about it. And the first thing I want you to understand about this is, uh, in the words of M. Scott Peck, life is difficult. It doesn't go the way that you think. Have you noticed? I'm Part of my job as a preacher is to tell you things you already know, but to put a big three-dimensional mirror up in front of you, and because sometimes things that you already know are things that you lose track of. Did anybody here have the week that they thought they were going to have? I want to talk to you after the service. Did you have the year that you thought you were going to have? Do you have any idea why I'm here this morning? 
It's ridiculous. I shouldn't be in South Carolina. My best friend from college said, I can see you serving anywhere except the Deep South. That's my best friend. But, but I also shouldn't be at Holy Cross because I was finishing up and uh, my dear friend Craig Barrett, who was there for 19 years, we worked together, he was there for 29 years, he left and so I needed a break. And Chris came up to me and next thing I knew in July last year, I was on the preaching staff of Holy Cross and I was tired and I had no idea what was going on. If you'd have asked me in January of last year, if I'd have been a Holy Cross last summer, I would have laughed you into the Atlantic Ocean. Not it's, because it isn't great. It's absolutely great. <laughs> but, but, but there's no way that I knew that it was coming. And that's what happens to the disciples in this passage. Jesus is with a crowd because they followed him. He was, he was trying to withdraw to Tiberias just to get some time alone with his disciples, partly because they just don't get it, and he needed more time to help them get it. But the crowd is so enamored of him and his magnetic personality and his incredible ability to do the things that he does that they follow him. And Jesus goes with the flow. He heals them, it says. In Matthew's gospel, it's very clear. He heals them because he had compassion on them. And they're still listening to his teaching. They're still coming up to him for healing. And the day is dragging on. The Greek is quite fascinating. It says literally in verse 12, if you look at your text, the day began to decline. Or you could even translate it, the day began to slope down. In other words, the disciples never even expected to get over Tiberias with a bunch of people. Not only were they there with a bunch of people, Jesus had done a bunch of things. And they were expecting the people to leave long before this. And they stayed there till the, the sun was getting ready to go down, which meant what? They hadn't had anything to eat all day. And so it was time to do something. And I want you to see that they get an A for being pragmatic in this setting, right? Let, let, look, Lord, obviously they're all famished. It's been a long day. So let's let them go find a place to lodge and let's let them go find food. And everything changes when he looks at him and says, you give him something to eat. Oops. Wasn't expecting that. Well, I wasn't expecting to be here. And there's a lot of things that happen in our lives that aren't expected. And here Jesus is, right, with the crowd in which there's three kind of people to quote Nicholas Murray Butler, right? Those who make things happen, those who watch things happen, and those who ask what's happening, right? So the crowd is a whole mixed bag, too. And the disciples are very practical, and it all changes because Jesus actually expects the 12 that he sent out not very long before our scene to actually do something to live into the need that they've correctly identified. So circumstances change, and we could spend the whole rest of the morning just on this. It means this, brothers and sisters, just as we fly past it. Learn as a Christian to sit loose with the gift of life. Yes, you are given the gift of life, but if you study the Gospels carefully, you are not leading your life, you are following your life. You are following Jesus in your life. Life is not something that you lead, life is a mystery to be lived, in which you are led. And if you are led, you don't know what's going to happen, you think you might have an idea of some of what's going to happen, but you sit loose with it because Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and he says this in John 3, blows where he wills. Y'all with me so far? All right, so second, the cause of the miracle. Why does Jesus do what he does? It's clear explicitly in Matthew's version because he uses the word, but it's implied strongly here, both in verse 11. Notice it says he cured those who had need of healing 
And he's concerned about them because even though the disciples are trying to be practical, the reality is they're tired, they don't know where they're going to go, and the disciples' solution involves a lot of uncertainty and stress for all these people. All they did was try to follow Jesus for a little bit, right? They don't know where they're going to stay. The disciples don't see that as their problem. They don't know where they're going to get anything to eat or what they're going to eat. The disciples don't see that as their problem either. Jesus doesn't function that way. Jesus functions not simply as a rabbi, but as the incarnate Lord who has compassion, and that's the central word, and Matthew uses it explicitly. It's implied in Luke's version. He has compassion on the crowd. He stops and asks himself the question, what if I were them? Now, you've got to understand this Greek word, splongizomai, which is the Greek word for compassion. This is the word that's used in Luke 10 in the parable of the Good Samaritan. For the Good Samaritan, you remember the story, when he sees the victim in the road and it says he stopped and he had compassion on him, right? That's the difference between the Levite, the priest, and the, and the Samaritan. And this is the verb that's used in Luke 15 in the parable of the prodigal son of the father who sees his son, his horrible, no good, terrible son who's made awful choices and made a mess of his life a long way off, which means he was out there every morning looking way down the road and hoping this might be the day for what he was praying for every single day, that maybe his son would come back. And he goes flying with his oriental robes flapping in the breeze and embarrassing himself in front of the whole village, and he doesn't care. Why does he go running to his son who's finally back? Because this word, he has compassion on him. It literally means your kidneys feel pain. Your kidneys feel pain. And the idea of the word is you put yourself in somebody else's situation to such an extent that you feel what they feel. Here's a question for those of you who are married. Do you have any idea how hard it is to be married to you? (laughs) I'm I'm absolutely serious. All you have to do is ask your spouse. I'm serious. If you're married, at some point in your life, you've got to stop and say to yourself, what is it like to be with me? My wife has a horrendous job. It's a huge, tall order. Don't even get her started. You're not allowed, you're not allowed to talk to her about this after service. But you, you, know what I, you understand what I mean. There's a wonderful Indian saying, um, in order to fully understand a man, you have to walk for two miles in his moccasins. That's what this word compassion literally means. In my hero, C.S. Lewis's life, there's a great illustration of this. He He's, he's pretty, he's in his 60s, he's getting up there, he's always been single, and for reasons we don't need to get into, he bumps into an American named Joy Davidman, he falls in love with her, she's in a terrible set of circumstances, he ends up marrying her against all sorts of advice and all the obvious reasons, and his life is transformed, he's never even been with a woman And uh, he discovers love in his 60s to somebody who's crazily different from him. Only problem is she she can contract cancer. And she starts to die. And there's a point in Lewis's life where they say, his doctors say, he started contracting the symptoms of her cancer in his own body. That's this word. That's how much he identified with her. He loved her. He had compassion on her. This is the Jesus with whom we have to do. So many great stories about compassion. Just a couple to get your mind thinking. George Truitt was one of the really effective pastors in Texas in the last several decades. 
His life was changed and his heart was broken when he accidentally killed his best friend when they were on a hunting trip. His daughter said after that day, and I quote, I never heard him laugh again. True, it had a radio program, and it was a good one. He closed his own radio program every single time this way. Be good to everybody, because everybody is having a tough time. Boom. Colonel Sanders was on an airplane flight with the nightmare that many of us have experienced. I love this story about compassion. There was a baby who was screaming and who wouldn't stop. I know you can identify with this. My wife and I have been on several of these. The poor parents tried everything, nothing worked. The airline flight attendants tried everything that wouldn't work. And it was driving everybody crazy. And the more people tried not to pay attention to it, you know, it's like a fire. You can't not listen to a crying baby. There's just something about that sound. And it was wrecking everybody's flight. And Colonel Sanders watches this go on and on, sees every failure, and finally says to the flight attendant, he beckons her over, he says, can I give it a shot? So um, he goes over to the baby, sits in the seat next to the parents because he gets somebody to change seats with them, and uh, rocks the baby to sleep. Complete success, first try. Total silence. Plane ride, huge success after that. People are going by, you know, giving him high fives and stuff. One, one, pass, one passenger says, and I quote, we really appreciate all that you did for us, Colonel Sanders. Colonel Sanders looks at him and says, I didn't do it for us. I did it for the baby. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's, that's compassion. That's what it actually means to put yourself in somebody else's situation. That's our Lord. That's one of the most important characteristics of his character. Do you know that Christ? Do you believe in that Christ? Are you with me, brothers and sisters? First, circumstances. Second, cause, the compassion of our Lord. Third, the components. Now, this is really important, and we're going to go through this in some detail because there's lots of pieces. You got two little things, five loaves and two fishes. You got these dunderheaded disciples that we've been talking about. And you got the miracle as it unfolds. And I want to take them each in their turn because they're each critically important. First, just a word about the five loaves and the two fishes. These symbols after this incident are so important to the early Christians. You can find them even to this day archaeologically all over the ancient Near East. They're seeing, you can go to places where where Christians have died, and you will see five loaves and two fishes, which means what? Jehovah Jireh, God provided for me. The God who provided for the 5,000 is the God who provided for me. So important. They seem so little. And you're going to hear me say this again and again from this pulpit. Little things are not little things in the kingdom of God. This story doesn't go anywhere unless somebody at least tries to do something with what little they apparently have. Because little is not little when God is added to the equation. I sent a story around the staff this week. Of a, of a woman who had a horrific experience in the airport. She left her passport and some other stuff at the TSA, and she got called over the public speaker, and she was embarrassed. And uh, she was so, she fell completely apart, and she was kind of on an airport bench. And the NPR audio story, which is so great because it's got her own voice, she says this woman that she didn't even know came over and said, Hun, are you okay? And it, was, it, it changed her day. It changed her life, in fact. And all this woman did was say, are you okay? Later, when she sort of pulled herself together and she started talking to the woman, she said, I, I'm going here. Where are you going? And she said, I'm going to bury my father. And she said she thought to herself, this is incredible. Airports are not places where you get outside yourself. 
And not only did the woman get outside herself, but she was going to bury her dad, and she had enough compassion and imagination to get out. You listen to that story and say, think of it. All she did was say, Han, are you okay? When was that a big thing? How hard is that? How much effort does it take? We're talking about Jesus who says one word to the right person at the right time with the right rhythm, and it all changes. The woman at the Samaritan well, you remember her. Go get your husband, he says. And her life has changed. They have a conversation about living water, and she goes and evangelizes an entire village. Just because Jesus says certain comments and questions in their conversation, are you kidding? Yeah, but not when the Holy Spirit's involved. So little things are not little things. This is about thank you notes. This is about making eye contact. This is about courtesy. This is about holding doors. And yes, I still believe in courtesy. Sorry. I still think it's important. And courtesy, as more than one of my friends has pointed out, even applies to telemarketers on the phone, <laughs> which, I, which I find really difficult. One of my friends said, they're created in the image of God too. And I kind of grumbled and said, well, I find it hard. I have a friend who travels all throughout the world. You can ask my family about him. He's a missionary of some significance. He calls the house at ludicrous hours of the day. And sometimes when he gets me, I'm not in a great mood, partly because of when he calls you at 3.30 in the morning. Hello. And you, here's what he says the other end. I, I'm sorry, that won't do. Click. He hangs up on me. Then he calls back and he waits. And I say, hi, Bill. And he said, that's much better. <laughs> my, my family loves him. They just love him. Now, what is it? What is it? Who cares how you answer the phone? Ah, little things are not little things. You all with me so far? Now, second, I want you to see, you got to see yourself in the perspective of the disciples if you're going to get this story. Think of it. They've experienced God's grace. They've experienced God's mercy and care. They've experienced God's power, and God's power has gone out from, from them to heal. In the story, a couple of pericopes, a couple of stories before this, when they send out the 12, they actually do some healing. So the dunderheads should be getting some of this by this time. But here's the thing that you got to understand about the story. Why are, do they mess up? Because they have a horizontal view. They see five loaves. They see two fish. They see the sun going down. They see all those people. And they don't see a way out. And what is the story about? What is the difference between Jesus and the disciples? They look this way and that and that way and that way. What does Jesus do when he gets the bread? you got to get this. Where does he look? Does he look that way? No, that way? No, not that way? Not this way. Up! They're not looking up. If you don't see yourself in these guys, in this story, at this point, you've got to realize they're not, they haven't got the right perspective. Where is God in the equation? Just because you can't see a way that something can be done doesn't mean that the Lord can't do it. They lack Christian imagination. They lack deep and genuine Christian perspective. Can you see yourself in them? Still not done. Not only is it about little things, not only is it about the false perspective of the disciples, but it's about the action Jesus calls the disciples to do. And when I was a young Christian, I really didn't get this story. I mean, it's a spectacular miracle. If you count 5,000 men, there's a lot more people. So let's just say for our purposes, there's 8,500 people. Just, I'm just picking a number. But I mean, the, the point is, this is not a small crowd of people. Okay, so when I first read this story, I thought, okay, Jesus takes the loaves, and he says a blessing, and he gets the loaves back, and there's lots and lots of loaves, and there's lots and lots of fishes, 
And so there's a miracle, and the miracle is of multiplication. That's what I thought, right? Not right. Not the way the text reads. Not what happened. Look at your text and think. And put yourself in the position of the disciples. You give him something to eat, verse 13. Now look at what he does. He says to his disciples, verse 14, have them sit down. And they did so. And here's the key to the whole scene. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the crowd. Nope. Doesn't say that. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to give to the crowd. Oops. Which means what? You've got to put yourself in the scene. Let's just say 12 disciples, groups of 50, baskets. And what does Jesus do? He takes the five loaves and two fish. He looks up to heaven. He blesses them. And what does he get back? The same five loaves and the two fish. You've got to get this. You're not going to get the story. And the disciples are like, this, this, this isn't going to work. This really, you know, we're going to humor him, but this, this isn't looking good. So you get like a quarter loaf in your, in your basket and you're John or James or Thomas or something. And you get on one side of a group of 50 and one of the other apostles gets on the other side. And you break the, you, you take the basket and give it to the first person. And they go down the aisle and you get to the end. And the disciple in the end kind of looks at you funny because it doesn't look like it's gone right. And then it goes the next row, and when it comes back, and it seems like the same amount of bread that you just had in the first row, and now you're on the second row, and all the people in the first row and all the people in the second row have had bread, and you got the same amount of bread. You see what's going on? And they still don't get it. Part of the reason this has such an impact is because they literally see the power of God unfolding row by row, piece of bread by piece of bread, person by person. And Jesus wants them to see it because that's what's necessary for them to get it. So it's not a miracle of multiplication. It's a miracle of distribution. And it involves the hands and the eyes and the bodies of the actual disciples. Somehow, in the majesty and the mystery of God, it's just like the feeding of the hundred men, if you're taking notes this morning in 2 Kings chapter 2, where Elisha feeds a hundred men with 20 loaves of barley and just a few fresh ears of grain. Not nearly enough. And the guy says, I'm not going to do this. How can I set this before 100 men? And Elisha says, set it. And the whole point of this story is someone greater than Elisha is here. But the disciples who should already know that by the time the story begins, by the end, oh boy, do they get it. And don't miss the last part now. How does it conclude? you got to get this. Not only is there enough, there's more than enough. And the narrative is at great pains to get you to get that. And they all ate and were satisfied. Every single one. The word that's used in Greek means to be over and above, to go beyond the expected measure, to abound. I seem to remember our rector talking about that word in the annual meeting. Anybody remember that? Abounding. This is a story about abounding. Not only did everybody get enough to eat, but there was some left over. God will provide. Jehovah Jireh, which is a magnificent phrase that goes back to Genesis 22, the story of Abraham and Isaac, when Abraham is called to sacrifice his son, and Abraham says, God will himself provide a lamb. And the the phrase in Hebrew literally means, God will see. 
Jehovah Jireh, God will see, God will provide. If you'd have asked Abraham when he went up that mountain if God would have provided, he would have not been able to answer the question without pouring his heart out in tears. He did, but he did. And not only did he provide, he more than provided. And as he provided for Abraham, so he will provide for us. He always provides. And can I just say before I tell you a couple stories, one thing. You need to reverse this and pause and think about the way sin works for just a second. The feeding of the 5,000 needs to be run up against Genesis 3. There are lots of parts of the fall that we don't focus on, that we don't get. But this is one that we really need to think about, especially those of us who are in the West, stuck in the middle of affluenza, right? You do know that you're living in the country with one of the 20 highest living standards in the world in one of the most well-off times in history. So you're in one of the highest income brackets in one of the most well-off nations in history. Our perspective is not the greatest on this stuff. What's the point, Kendall? Well, the point is this. You've got to understand that underneath Adam and Eve's sin is this. They've been given literally everything except one thing. And they say to themselves, I wonder if it's, it might not be enough. How do I know that it's enough? How do I know that God's going to take care of me? And we all do this again and again. I collect stories about the feeding of the 5,000, and I, I dug around in my files this week, and I had a ball because I had a whole bunch that I haven't used ever. And um, I think I'm just going to use one for time purposes. But in this Internet group that I was part of, one pastor asked, feeding a 5,000 question, he asked all these other pastors, have ever, any of you ever experienced this? And I, I, I copied all these files. And these stories are just fabulous because you know that they're true. And they literally are the feeding of the 5,000 in the 20th and the 21st century. So stay with me and see what you make of this. Here's just one story. This is the Ministerial Alliance in Union Springs, Alabama, right? Now, just a quick word about ministerial alliances. Do you know what I'm talking about? This is ecumenical <coughs> groups of ministers. Ministers are terrible, dysfunctional people they're a mess and they have hard time getting getting along with one another most ministerial associations are a huge uh, grab bag some are great some are awful this one was obviously quite good they planned a spring concert at the city park in union springs alabama a number of years ago they got the gospel group from the state prison and, and and the man who shared the story says and i quote they were very good which is a story in itself which i absolutely love okay Food was brought to feed the singers, all right? So put yourself in the situation. It's a great idea, right? Spring concert, invite people to come, get this great group from the prison. It's all fine. What they didn't plan, plan on, what nobody told them was, once they got entrance to the park, the guard wouldn't let them leave. Everyone had to be fed right there. So they had food for the singers, and that was it. And they had the singers, and everybody came to the concert. And I quote... So we sent people through the line to get home-baked bread, country fried chicken. Some children fell in line wanting some of the delicious food. Parents followed, and then finally everyone went through the serving line. And when it was over, everyone in the crowd had enough to eat, and there was one piece of chicken and some beans left. And I quote, if we had known in advance we were going to need to feed all those people, we would have canceled our plans immediately. As it was, we caught a glimpse of the kingdom of God 
And these last two details about this true story I love. No one in the crowd had a clue what was going on. They were the only ones that knew. It just looked like a normal concert and festive food. Great. I still don't understand, he said, how all those people feasted on so little. But here's my favorite detail. The planning committee resolved next year to dispense with the food. And he writes this. There's something about the feeding of the 5,000 that scares the bejeebers out of us. I mean, that'll preach, brothers and sisters. You, can't, you cannot make that up. You just cannot make that up. Everything from the prison ban to the guard making them stay to all the food lasting. But I especially love the fact that somehow it worked and the planning committee's response is, no food, We're not trying that again. We don't want to tempt God. I mean, he might actually show up. My gosh. So what have I said? Life is difficult. Christ is compassionate. Little things are not little things. God will provide. You all with me? All right, now two points in conclusion, then we're done. I would like to emphasize the compassion of Christ and the provision of God in particular to each and every one of us this morning. First, absolutely critical. Do you really, as you live and move and have your being as a Christian, you yourself, when you're in the corner of your bedroom watching the spider build a web and thinking about your life and where you are and what you want to do and what you're made of, the things that really matter, do you know that Christ loves you so much that even the very hairs on your head are numbered in his sight? Is that your view of Jesus and how he regards you? I was messing around with Augustine this week in my studies, and he is either one or two of the greatest minds we've ever had in the church, he and Thomas Aquinas. And when I was reading this insight of his, I was thinking, in my mind, having read a bunch of his stuff but not all, I think it's the most profound thing he ever said. So this is one of the most profound things ever said by one of the best minds we've ever had in the church, which is saying something. In his writings, he actually said this, and I I want you to think about this for a few moments this morning. Augustine actually says, God cares for each one of us as though there were only one of us. O thou omnipotent, he says in his confessions, who cares for every one of us as if you cared for one only. You get the picture? If there were only one person in the world... And God was called to love that person. All the love for that only person God would have. The kind of love that parents who have only children really have for a child. That's a staggering statement for God to make. And that is the compassion that God has for us. He weeps with those who weep. He lives in the trenches alongside us. He feels what we feel. He understands when we struggle. That is the Christ to whom we pray. That is the Christ whom we have to know and love. That is the Christ that changes lives, brothers and sisters. Do you believe in him? Do you know him? Do you really believe that he loves you that much as if you were his only child? The love of Christ is so deep and so broad that we can never get to the end of it. You've got to know it yourself. You've got to believe it yourself. It's one thing for parents to say they love their child. It's a whole other thing for a child to actually realize to start to take it in that it's true. Well, that's true of lots of Christians too. We talk about the love of God. We talk about the truth of God. We we say Jesus died for you and he loves you. 
But a lot of people who hear about the love of God don't know the love of God. This is a passage that calls us to believe that the Christ who had compassion on the crowd is the Christ who has compassion on us. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you live that? That's question one. And question two is about God providing. You see, the thing about sermons is they have to touch down where you really live and move and have your being. The question is not, will God provide? The question is this, will God provide for you and your family and those you care for right now with the things you struggle with in your life where you live and move and have your being? It's not abstract. It's powerful. And not only will he provide, but he'll provide more than enough. Just one final story, then I'll pray about us. We, For reasons we don't need to get into now, in 1990, after I served three years at Holy Comforter, we decided that we were going to try to pursue doctoral studies. And uh, I got accepted to Oxford, which is another story for another time. And at the time, in 1990, it was going to cost a little over $30,000 a year for three years if we managed to survive that long. So we had to come up with $100,000 to even consider this, which I thought was completely nuts. And I didn't know how it was going to happen. I didn't think it would happen. And the rector with whom I was working, Charlie Walton, who some of you may know him, former rector of Holy Comforter and was at St. John's, John's Island, a fantastic saint of God. He came over to the house because he knew that I'd gotten into Oxford. He knew I was wrestling. And he sat down and he said, Kendall, of course you're going to go to Oxford. And of course you're going to raise the money because my wife and I right now are going to pledge X amount. And I almost fell off my chair. He said, of course you're going to do it. And he and his wife pledged a, an amount per year that just, I mean, my eyes kind of went, Bzzz. I thought, my gosh, if the Waltons pledged that much, holy smokes. And I was like, and I looked at him and I thought, Kendall, where's your faith? I mean, come on, if God's called you to do this, do you actually think it's going to be hard to get the provision to do it? I'll never forget that. He, had, he, he just, he made it easy for me. I never was going to ask him for money. He's a priest. Right? That's, right? That's, that's, not good, that's not good marketing. Right? But, the, but, the, but the point is the people of God were so generous. And we, we raised all the funds that we needed and we had enough. Indeed, we had more than enough. I sometimes think back to the fact that we literally had nothing except what was given to us for those three years. And now we have something. And I worry more about money now than I ever did then. Which just speaks volumes to exactly what I'm talking about. Now, look, I don't have a job full time. I could talk to you all morning about the stuff I need God to provide for me. You have stuff in your life that you maybe it's health concerns, it's child concerns, it's future concerns, it's financial concerns. We could go on all morning. But I know that you have an aspect of your life where God needs to provide. And you got to put yourself right there with the disciples and you got to hear if five loaves and two fishes and the power of God is enough, indeed more than enough. If God took care of them, if the very hairs on our head are numbered in his sight, he took care of them, he'll take care of us. And you've got you to stretch that out and say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You with me? The feeding of the 5,000, the only one that appears in all four Gospels. What a great story. Circumstances, cause, components, conclusion. He is compassionate. He will provide. In Jesus' name, amen.